Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. New York is a hot spot for the coronavirus. Boston has a lot of cases. So some people are leaving home for safer ground. I strategized packing my car like a sardine. If there's going to be a fire, I don't want to be standing in a bunch of kindling. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear about Rhode Island's approach to out-of-staters as COVID-19 cases rise. And school integration is a goal for some districts, but there can be unintended consequences. We talked to a mother who says a local push for integration has disadvantaged her child. My kid was not allowed to go there because we did not win a lottery. Lots of little white families were able to send their children. Plus, we go beyond the basic sex education requirements in New Hampshire. You have to like, have permission before you like act upon you know, the sexual things. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for joining us. I'm Morgan Springer. Under usual circumstances, states in New England welcome tourists. They want them shopping in their grocery stores and walking through their towns and parks. But these are not normal circumstances. A number of states, including Vermont and Rhode Island, have ordered all out-of-state visitors to self-quarantine for 14 days to help stop the spread of the coronavirus. Alex Nunes of the Public's Radio in Rhode Island reports. Corey Williams says he knew earlier on in the COVID-19 crisis that he couldn't stay in Brooklyn. He and his wife have a four-month-old daughter, and they're worried her heart condition puts her at increased risk. So last month, they decided to leave. We had to come to terms with the fact that we weren't going to be returning for a number of weeks. So we really pared down everything that we would need, and I strategized packing my car like a sardine. If there's going to be a fire... I don't want to be standing in a bunch of kindling. Corey went to Warwick, the town he grew up in. Now he, his wife, and his daughter are living in a home his parents own. He says people may disagree with his decision, but he says he did what was best for his family. And now they're all taking responsible precautions. We are almost superstitious about our cleaning. We have gloves, we have masks. Every package coming into the house is wiped down. We really haven't left the house. I went out once to get groceries. I have a mask and I wore gloves. I was the only person in the grocery store wearing that. Corey is by no means alone. In recent weeks, Rhode Islanders have been spotting more out-of-state cars as New Yorkers escape the city and head for their second homes on the coast. Some year-round residents say they sympathize with the New Yorkers, but others are critical, online and over their back fences, saying the new arrivals are putting Rhode Islanders at risk. It's definitely a concern. And especially, you know, coming from New York, which is a hot spot. Deb Carney is a member of the Charlestown Town Council. She says she's been hearing from residents worried about the New Yorkers coming in to ride out the coronavirus. They're hard to miss at the beach and local grocery stores. I myself was at the uh, mini-super when there were two New York cars in the parking lot. 
And on my way home, I passed another one on the road. The Rhode Island communities of Charlestown, Westerly, and Narragansett had asked out-of-state travelers to self-quarantine when they arrive in town. And then on March 27th, Governor Gina Raimondo ordered all people coming from New York State to quarantine for two weeks. She later extended the order to all out-of-staters, after getting criticized for singling out New Yorkers. State troopers are pulling over cars, and National Guard members are going door-to-door in coastal communities to help enforce the rule. I understand this is an extreme measure. I believe in, in light of the crisis, in light of the fact that New York City is a hot spot, their infection rate is skyrocketing, and it, they are so close to Rhode Island, in my judgment, this is the most prudent course of action in light of the totality of the circumstances. The announcement raised eyebrows with the state ACLU questioning its constitutionality. But University of Rhode Island professor Jeffrey Bratberg, a public health and infectious disease expert, says people are right to be concerned about the influx of travelers from New York. If you go to your second home and you have an empty fridge, now you're increasing the number of contacts as opposed to where you were staying. He's concerned about what the influx of New Yorkers could mean for scarce health care resources in Rhode Island. Now you have the potential of exposing more people in Rhode Island, for example, and overwhelm the capacity here. You might be able to go and get a ventilator, but all the people that you infected will need a ventilator at a time when there are even more restrictions, for example. He says people in New York City should try to stay there, order takeout, and ask other people to bring them groceries if they're at a higher risk. The governor says authorities will be advising New Yorkers who come here of the need to self-quarantine and take other precautions. In Warwick, Corey Williams says his family did just that. And their two-week quarantine ended March 30th. He and his wife don't have jobs they can do remotely, so they're out of work for now. Corey says he's also beginning to wonder if he'll even go back to New York once it's safe. But on the other hand, what would my life look like otherwise, you know? So I'm trying to be realistic and keep my options open. For now, he's spending his time playing with his daughter and writing fiction when he can. So far, it's crime mysteries. Definitely no stories about contagions and global pandemics. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alex Nunes. The COVID-19 pandemic has led to panic buying of certain items, notably toilet paper. Some stores have sold out. Others have resorted to rationing. In some cases, just one roll per customer, leading some people to call toilet paper white gold. As Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell reports, the sudden demand is proving to be a challenge and opportunity for one fledgling family business in a part of Maine that has struggled through hard times in the paper industry. It's been insane. Um, I don't sleep much. And that's how it's been for Mark Cooper and his son Jake since their toilet paper startup Tissue Plus was launched into sudden go mode this month. So unfortunately we weren't quite prepared for this to happen so quickly. But we're doing our best to to meet the demand. We've been very fortunate that there's been a good workforce available. Try to make sure they go in there nice and straight. If they get crooked, it'll mess everything up. That's Jeff Clement shouting over the din of a special machine, one we're not allowed to describe and which does something we're not allowed to detail because they're trade secrets. Clement says he spent 30 years working at the mill in Bucksport before it shut down six years ago. The availability of veteran paper workers like Clement is one reason that Cooper, who hails from Massachusetts, decided to head north a year ago and invest his life savings in an empty 100,000-square-foot building in Bangor. 
He had to buy and design new equipment and fit the space for what he was trying to accomplish. In all, he says the endeavor has cost almost $2 million. But this was before anyone had even heard of COVID-19. Definitely can't um, argue with the timing, for sure. But we've been working on this project for about a year. So we saw an opportunity in the area of tissue and toweling because it's a consumable product. People use it every day. At the moment, Cooper employs 20 full-time workers. One of them is Peter Hamill, who spent 37 years at the Georgia-Pacific Mill in Old Town before it shut down in 2006. Hamill says he never thought he'd see a new paper plant come online in the area, but he's hopeful. I think we're going to make it. Uh, It's an opportunity, and it's good for the area bring employment into the area. Right now you're making probably one of the most popular products on the planet. Yeah, oh yeah, don't know why, but people are hoarding it out. <laughs> Currently, Tissue Plus is churning out toilet tissue and paper towels 18 hours a day. Owner Mark Cooper says he recently started running all weekend to meet demand from the state's prison system. And daily inquiries are pouring in from all over. I actually received an inquiry from the country of Iceland yesterday. Grocery store chains from Florida, distributors from around the country. It's, the demand is insane for toilet paper. But so far, local demand is unspooling every roll as fast as workers can wind them. At capacity, the plant should be able to make 80 rolls per minute round the clock. But Cooper says he needs another 15 to 20 workers to be able to do that. Right now, he's brainstorming ideas to try and generate more capital so he can hire them, including the launch of a direct-to-consumer toilet paper subscription service. And he's not the only one in the family who's been burning the midnight oil in recent weeks. A lot of kids in college have not faced a lot of adversity in their lives. Cooper's son, 20-year-old Jake, is also working overtime to get the new plant rolling, in addition to attending college full-time. He says he and his father have been staying up until 3 a.m. to make sure tissue gets into the supply chain. Jake says impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic will likely offer his generation some lessons about making things work under tough circumstances. And he says it's taught him something about teamwork and balancing obligations. We have been able to find ourselves either donating to homeless shelters or um, pantries and um, keep our employees paid and I mean, it's definitely a little bit of a boost to show that we can actually help the community, and I think that's the most rewarding factor of it. But new businesses are notoriously unprofitable. Mark Cooper says they've seen money go in one direction for the last 12 months. That is, out. But there are hopeful signs. He says in February, Tissue Plus was already almost breaking even. And March... He says with the solid demand coming from every corner of the globe, he's predicting they will break even and maybe even turn a small profit. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jennifer Mitchell. Finished product out. Send it on down the line. It's a busy time of year for Vermont's vegetable and fruit farmers. Spring is coming, and farmers across the state will soon be turning their soil and starting another growing season. And even though the new coronavirus is raising a lot of questions about how they'll market the vegetables and flowers they grow, farmers are plowing ahead. Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss-Tisman has more. If you're looking for signs of hope in these very troubling times... Take a walk through the greenhouse at any commercial vegetable farm in Vermont. 
So basically, just getting started here, we have tomatoes and different types of onions and scallions and kales and chars and things like that. John Cohen owns Deep Meadow Farm in Windsor County, and his greenhouse smells like summer. It's warm and humid inside, and every tiny seedling offers the promise of abundance and better times ahead. Cohen started a lot of these plants a few months ago, when COVID-19 was still only a potential threat to our health and to our lives. And at this point, Cohen says he's moving forward. We're on track. I mean, we are. We have a you know a seeding planting schedule. We're moving forward with it. You know, we um we have all of our seeds. We have all of our materials, and you know we'll uh you know we're we're farmers. We're we, <laughs> we're resilient. We'll figure. You know, we often figure things out. Cohen's plants are almost ready to go into the ground. And he's been down on the farm with his crew, even though he has a lot of questions about how this season might play out. He's not sure how COVID-19 might affect his CSA customers, who pick up their orders at the farm, or if his farmer's market will open. Cohen also has some big accounts around Boston. It's uncertain if that market will still be there, or if he'll have trouble moving produce. And Cohen relies on temporary workers from Jamaica to get his harvest in every year. But international travel has gotten a lot more complicated. Our friends from Jamaica who work for us, you know, they uh, are critical components for ourselves, for you know, many of the farms through uh, Vermont and uh, New England use H-2A workers that are producing the volume that services the regional communities. The agency has been in close connection for weeks now with the congressional delegation around the H-2A worker issue and the, you know, closure of the Jamaican and Mexican consulate. Abby Willard is with the Agency of Agriculture, and she's been reaching out to vegetable and fruit farmers across Vermont to try to answer questions about the upcoming season. Willard is hopeful that temporary workers from Jamaica and Mexico will be able to get here to help with the vegetables and with Vermont's apple crop in the fall. And she's been working on strategies to help farmers harvest and deliver produce while maintaining social distancing. Because, she says, we're about to find out just how strong our local food system really is. So the network and the mechanism and infrastructure that we have in Vermont is being put to work and put to test right now after all the years of investment that we've made in building a vibrant local food system. At Walker Farm in Dummerston, co-owner Jack Mannix does a lot of business in the spring selling vegetable starters and seeds. He says the phone's been ringing off the hook with customers asking when and if the farm will open. And Mannix is not surprised. The demand from our customers has been incredible uh, for our garden center um, because everybody's staying at home, um, nobody's traveling. Uh, people in a time of anxiety turn to their gardens. We always called it cheap therapy before this, and now it's even <laughs> more important therapy, I think. For now, Mannix has his full crew working, and his greenhouses are busting with flowers and vegetable starters. But he's very unclear on what he'll be able to sell, or even if he'll be able to open his farm stand. 
He's trying to work on a pre-order curbside pickup system, though he's afraid the state might approve vegetable sales, but not flowers. And Mannix does not think that would be a good idea. You're going to have a revolution. I don't think the state knows how important flowers are to, to people in this state, you know, uh, to gardeners. And uh, if, if we have to, we'll have our customers petition, you know, also write in letters to petition the state that, to tell them how, how important those are. Mannix also grows organic vegetables on about 30 acres of this rich Connecticut River Valley soil and it gets busy. Walker Farm is the kind of place where they need a sheriff out front directing traffic during the height of the summer. The farm stand is small, and usually that's part of the charm, squeezing in between overflowing bins of green beans and cucumbers and rubbing elbows with your neighbors. Mannix knows that won't work this summer. But at this point, he's still planning on putting out pansies and lettuce starters in early April. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Howard Weiss-Tisman. In a recent show, we asked you to share your experience with distance learning now that nearly all schools are closed. Listener Sue Johnson had this advice for parents. I have two teenagers, and they have begun reading out loud to our friends' younger children. And I'm thinking that These teenagers have a lot of time on their hands suddenly, and they could very well be deployed to do some of that one-on-one tutoring that the younger kids need. We could have a whole brigade of kids who are available for tutoring. This week, we'd like to leave it more open-ended. Call us and tell us how you're feeling right now, your worries, your questions, your hopes for the future. Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. Coming up, we look at school integration and the complicated choices that parents make. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. We turn now to conversations about race and education, beginning with a former student from Boston Latin School. Three years ago, students took to social media, protesting racism and social inequities at the prestigious Honors School. And as part of WBUR's series, Lessons Learned, we hear from one of the former leaders of the hashtag Black at BLS movement. Here's Meggie Noel reflecting on her experience as a minority at a mostly white and Asian school. It was our lives that were just being so engulfed with racial tension at that time. It was Trayvon Martin. It was Mike Brown. It was Eric Garner. It was every time we looked at our phones and on social media and all of our discussions, every time we heard on the radio, it was another black life that was being lost. And then we came to school 
and it was silence. It's still so disheartening when you feel that you can't do anything or you feel that you're stuck and you're not able to really mobilize, especially, you know, you're too young, you know, there's nothing you can really do or, you know, got to think about next steps and education and all this, all these things kind of whirling around that are just trying to push you down in a sense. When you're in the minority at school, it's this constant environment of self-doubt. You're already doubting yourself because there's no one else who looks like you. You're already doubting yourself because you don't have teachers who look like you. You don't have those role models. You don't have those guides. We had to fight to ensure that our voices would remain at the center point. So we said, okay, what do we want to, what do we want to do? What do we want to say? It's recording? Yeah. All right. Let's get it. Hi. Had some notes, <laughs> literally on like the back of a quiz or something, like a piece of scrap paper, and just put up the phone. We said, okay, well, here we go. Hashtag Black at BLS when you're the only black student in your AP US history course, and when slavery comes up, they all turn to you. We were so vulnerable and honest and just telling our truth. In one take, we just... We just put it out. Stay proud and keep striving for black excellence. And in our head, we're like, our friends will tweet out, you know, maybe some alumni will get involved too. And, you know, something that happened. And something did happen. (laughs) Something pretty big did happen. Then the media. Boston Globe, yeah, New York Times, Essence, Boston Herald. It just spiraled into a life of its own. It was a life-changing experience because it, it forced us all to realize that we have a voice. And if we use it correctly, we can absolutely make a change and make an impact. be all right. All Right by Kendrick Lamar. That was the song I remember senior year. We love that message that no matter what was going on around us, we knew that if we had each other, like, we were going to be all right. We still made a difference. During college, you know, I felt that there was a time where I lost my voice. So it goes to and it's an all-woman's institution. And I said, oh, cool, I'm here. I'm going to find sisterhood. I'm going to find community. And that wasn't the reality. You know, life hit. My mom lost her job. My grandmother passed. I was struggling with depression. I was dealing with a sexual assault. And at the end of every semester, I was just struggling to keep up. Coming from a situation where my voice had such an impact and I didn't even realize it, it was such a hard contrast and it was such a weird transition. Eventually, I I ended up taking, you know, a semester off and, you know, had to continue rebuild myself, you know, at home at my core community. I was like, wow, this feels like high school again. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but I needed that. It wasn't until I had those moments and those experiences that I was able to kind of get back on track and um, walk in my purpose. I just, you know, had to remind myself the importance of my voice, the importance of my own legacy, the importance of speaking up. Maggie Noel is a senior at Spelman College in Atlanta. That story was produced by WBUR's Carrie Young. A 2016 federal investigation of Boston Latin School found a pattern of race-based harassment and discrimination. 
Since then, the school has instituted new cultural proficiency training, launched an official student feedback system, and now offers an African-American studies course. A new report this year says the majority of parents in the U.S. want schools that are racially and economically integrated. But in districts where parents have school choice, schools actually tend to become more segregated. The report is from the Making Caring Common Project at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. We recently talked to Eric Torres. He's co-author of the report and a Ph.D. student at Harvard. And we started the conversation by talking about if parents really do want school integration. Yeah, it's a complicated question, and I think reasonable people can actually look at our data and come to different conclusions about it. Um, On the one hand, across race, class, gender, and a political affiliation, parents are saying they support school integration in principle. Um, And not only that, but majorities of parents of all races, and both Democrats and Republicans, say that states and districts should be taking action to ensure integration. Um, on the other hand, uh, as, as you've noted, uh, this is other research, not our own, shows that in districts where parents uh, have uh, unrestricted choices about the schools they send their kids to, we often see increases in segregation. Yeah, so, so your report found that white parents were behaving actually in the opposite way than they said they wanted to, and they were picking schools with more affluent white students. Do you have a sense of why? Yeah, so... Our report um, didn't look at the choices that parents were actually making. We, we, our report investigated parents' priorities and their thinking about integration. And it's through the synthesis of other research that shows um, the decisions that, that parents are actually making gives us some reason to believe that um, when, when given these unrestricted choices, parents tend to choose whiter, more affluent schools. Um, and I think part of the reason for that, uh, and it's actually consistent with our data, is that parents are ranking things like school safety and academic quality higher than integration. We ask parents to name their their top three priorities when they're considering a school for their children. About 80% of parents say academic quality, um, enrichment activities, and safety also figure highly. Only about 8% are saying that you know, racial or class integration is among the most important factors for dis- for choosing a school. And so when the rubber hits the road, oftentimes parents see these two things as in conflict. They say, I, I would like other things being an e- equal, a school that's uh, integrated for my children, but um, these other priorities are more important, and I tend to see schools that are integrated as being academically inferior. So if they're prioritizing things like school quality, are they using metrics that are that are good? How are they even making that determination? Yeah, it's a great that's a great question, and it's really complicated. Um, you know, parents have available to them a wide array of data about schools now more so than ever. Um, they can look online and look at school report cards. Um, the issue is that oftentimes these report cards tend to focus on a relatively narrow conception of what constitutes a high quality school. You know, namely one that um, has. Uh, high uh, standardized scores um, or an academic performance. Um, Parents are also talking to uh, primarily members of their own sort of social and peer circles. And in those circles, uh, for white affluent parents, for example, uh, rumors and biases can propagate and go unchecked. Um, Oftentimes, parents may find that a school gains a reputation in one of these small circles, but were they to go visit it themselves, they would find that it's an excellent place. Um, And they might not see there being that conflict between their priority for 
uh, high-quality academic environments and uh, integration. So it's kind of this mix of, you know, we'd like to we'd like to pick a school that integrates, but it's not our top priority. And then there's a mix in there of just like inherent bias about schools that's not grounded in facts. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So th- this may seem like kind of a simple question, but as an education researcher, what are the benefits of school integration? I think the research shows that particularly for low-income students, there are a lot of academic benefits. Um, Some of those have to do with the fact that schools which have higher proportions of middle- and upper-income kids tend to be better resourced and better supported. Um, There there are also some benefits for low-income students to having a a peer network that contains more affluent um, middle- and upper-income students as well. There's also a great benefit sort of socially and emotionally and civically to going to school with children who are different uh, from you in a variety of different ways. And that's true both for low-income students, for high-income students, for white students, for black students. Um, that's true for everybody. So for parents who are making this claim, you know, I, I, I want to send my kid to a more integrated school and they really mean it, how can they actually make this happen? How can they make it a, t- a, t- a top priority or should they? Uh, we definitely think they should. I mean, we think this is important for the country as a whole. It's important for um, your kids, for other kids. I think a, a, a society in which everybody is sort of engaged in a civic mission together is is going to fare better in the long run. Uh, and I think in order to get parents past some of these uh, misconceptions, um, they can look at the data, of course, look at all the available data, but also take a visit to a school you're considering. Don't just rely on talk amongst your your peer circle. I want to just take a, a wider view for a second um, before I let you go and, and just acknowledge that parent choice is one factor getting in the way of school integration. Um, can you talk about some of the other barriers? This is a really important point. And while our research focuses on parents thinking, uh, we don't want to suggest that this is either the only or the most important thing to think about when we're trying to achieve integration. There are big structural components here, too. Residential segregation is a huge barrier in many communities. Um, I think it, we would be wrong to, to put this all on individual parents. Um, we, need, we need to think more broadly, too. Eric Torres is a co-author of the report and a Ph.D. student at Harvard. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Hartford, Connecticut has been held up by researchers and U.S. education officials as a model for school integration. The city is predominantly black and Latino and mostly surrounded by white suburbs. More than two decades ago, in a court case called Sheff versus O'Neill, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that black and Latino children in Hartford were at a huge disadvantage because their schools were racially segregated. As a result, magnet schools were built in the Hartford area as a way to voluntarily integrate schools. Admissions were, and still are, decided by lottery. The rule was 25% of the student body had to be white or Asian. Since then, thousands of city and suburban students have gone to magnet schools. But Kamora Harrington's eight-year-old son, Isaiah, is not one of them. She says she entered him into the school lottery for an environmental magnet school called Mary Hooker multiple times, but he was never chosen. Harrington is a community advocate, and she joined us in studio recently to talk about her experience with school choice as a black mother in Hartford. As we're getting ready to look at what pre-K was going to look like, 
and literally directly across the street is Mary Hooker. So every day I'm looking at the school that's got the big, the rainforest up in front that you can see, and then the gardens on the side and the wheelbarrows. And you can see all of these places where kids are doing experiments and they're playing and they're touching dirt. And I've got this dirt kid who loves experiments, right? So that's where I wanted him to go. And we never made the lottery. So he never got to go there. And how many times did you enter the lottery and try to get him into that school? (sighs) Every single year. So three years in a row. Um, And this year, we haven't even bothered with the lottery. It's just, I'm tired. I'm over it. One of the major goals of the Chef case was to offer better schools with more resources to Black and Latino children in Hartford. Um, And it's been almost 24 years since that court decision. When you're talking about this case with your friends and your neighbors in Hartford, what is the mood like? Chef versus O'Neill is one of those great places of Hindsight is 2020, and understand the second you think you won something, they're figuring out how to screw it up and how you didn't win anything. Isaiah goes to a school that is underfunded. The resources are not there. This morning on the way over here, we were talking a little bit. It's like, you know, no, I want you to go to the environmental sciences school. You didn't go to that school. You love science. What are some of the science things that you do? This year, my child is in second grade. I really, really, really hope that there's a bunch of suburban parents who are preparing for the science fair right now who hear that the only science experiment that my child has done this year is watching ice turn into water. They put ice cubes in a baggie, they taped it on the window, and then calculated how long it took it to melt. We live directly across the street from the environmental science school. My kid was not allowed to go there because we did not win a lottery. Lots of little white families were able to send their children. I got to every morning deal with this traffic jam outside of my home because they were driving their kids in, knowing that over the summer, knowing that in the spring, when they were at home just figuring out what they were going to do, they live in towns with perfectly adequate elementary schools. And their choice, their choice is to sit up and look at these different brochures and decide, do I want my child going to the neighborhood school? Or what about this school with science? You know what? Let's try it and see how it works. That's what their situation is. My situation is, I really hope that A, not too many white families apply because if too many of them are in there, then there's not a space for my kid. But that enough of them apply because if not enough of them apply, then my child going in there, my beautiful melanated black child, will throw off the racial mix in such a way that it will be bad. So somehow if you've got too many black kids in the classroom, you're not achieving diversity in the way that they seem to think that we should be achieving diversity. So in your experience, it's like this this goal for integration just meant that white families get choice and Period. continue to get choice. And you are not ex- experiencing that at Period. All. And we solidify that they come before us. Yeah. And so aside from their choice, it's like let's get down to the fundamental level. Here in America, we talk about white supremacy and what that looks like and how horrible it is. But if your four-year-old knows that they can go wherever they want and my four-year-old can't, then how are we not creating a world where white supremacy is? You, you can't move past that. You can't. What do you think would be – what would be a system that would be ideal for you? Like what, what would be good? <sighs> This, this, is, this is always the hard question for me because it can sound very much like I'm trying to come up with some black nationalist whatever. 
and in maybe, maybe in some ways I am, we understand and know that children learn best from people who come from the same background. That's been researched over and over and over again. Rather than moving my children out to say, go learn with white people because they're better, I would have loved to have seen the money be poured into the schools existing in the way they are. I would love to see the neighborhood schools built and watch our children interact with their communities and their neighborhoods. Rather than come up with this ridiculous idea that desegregation is the goal, grown-ups don't believe that. You do not see the people in Simsbury going to meetings and saying, it's so sad that there's no black people living here. We've got to do something to make black people live here with us. They're not doing that. They're balancing their budgets on our children. They are pretending as if having their children go to school with diverse children of color, that that somehow creates a place where they can appear to be wonderful, progressive, accepting people that white folks in Connecticut want to believe that they are. You know, I think about my childhood. There was just this tinge and this understanding that white was right, and if you're black and in white space, you better be grateful for it. That was 40 years ago, and here today, we, again, going, going right back to you can win the lottery and you can, you can go to the good school, or you can lose and go to your neighborhood school. Do you feel like there's this tension that you feel in yourself? Like there's part of you that wants your son to go to the magnet school, right? And then there's also the part of you that feels like this is just, you know, white people saying, I invite you to win the lottery, to, to live life the way I say. Like, is there a tension in you there or no? No. No. <laughs> no. 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 There's an anger that that's the option. Yeah. There's a rage that no one thought that the neighborhood schools were worth it. Did you enter the lottery in the first place because you felt like, um, you know, I want I want the school with more resources? Yeah. We entered the lottery because that's what we had. Do you think that will you will you try the lottery again? At this point, no, because he's aware of it. Mm. And And I'm. I am completely serious when I say this built-in understanding of disparity solidifies white supremacy. Isaiah doesn't know yet that he lives in a world where his melanated body is dictated by the decisions of non-melanated bodies. Kimora Harrington is the mother of eight-year-old Isaiah. Kimora, thank you so much for talking. Thank you very, very much. This school year, 38% of Hartford children who entered the lottery did not get in. That's according to the Connecticut Mirror. But in January, there was a settlement in the Chef desegregation case. The settlement opens up more spots for Hartford students and magnet schools, and it switches up the lottery system to focus on a family's socioeconomic status. After the break, we talk about sex education in New Hampshire, from consent to abstinence. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Hey, friends. We're with NHPR. We're just wondering if you had a minute to talk. We just had a quick question or two. About? Uh, about sex ed. That was Jimmy Gutierrez from New Hampshire Public Radio. And he asked people what they remember learning in sex education in the state. Well, I remember first we learned about puberty. Don't have sex, you'll die. It was just kind of like, these are condoms, this is birth control. That was the main drive, was abstinence education. Well, back in my day, there was no such thing as sex ed. 
This next segment is all about sex ed, so consider that your warning. Jimmy Gutierrez joins us to talk about his reporting for the podcast, The Second Greatest Show on Earth. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Morgan. And Sarah Willa Ernst, the Couch Fellow for NHPR, also reported on sex ed for the podcast. Sarah, welcome to Next. Hey, Morgan. So let's get started with the basics for sex education in New Hampshire schools. You kind of divvied up the reporting. And Jimmy, this was an area that you focused on. Um, So tell us, what are students required to learn in New Hampshire? Not much. Um, Pretty much (laughs) HIV education and then um, conversations around STIs or STDs. And that's about it. That is super minimal. Do do schools go beyond that? Uh, Some schools do. One in particular was the Portsmouth School District. And we talked with the Portsmouth students, uh, teachers, as well as uh, their superintendent, Steve Zadravac. The state generally sets, you know, a, a baseline standard. But I think most districts look at that as, a, OK, but what else do we need to address here? So Steve Zadravac is really aware that students are coming in contact with sexuality throughout their entire days, throughout their lives. Uh, So they try to be very conscientious of having this a larger point of their education. And they they teach something that's called comprehensive sex education, right? Correct. So what are like the ways in which that goes beyond? Yeah, so comprehensive sex ed is really thought of as being both age appropriate and medically accurate. And they'll touch on things from HIV and STIs to healthy relationships to consent, uh, those conversations will morph uh, age appropriately. But basically, in New Hampshire, they'll only get comprehensive sex ed at their school if the district pursues it or if there's funding. Is that right? That's right. Do you have a sense of how New Hampshire's sex ed requirements compare to other New England states? We have a vague sense, so it's really difficult to find what is being required. States like Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, are very much like New Hampshire, where they do not require sex ed. It's more of that local control kind of model, district by district. What do we think is appropriate? What do we have the appetite to kind of teach? Whereas Maine and Vermont require some form of sex ed to be taught in in schools past just the HIV, STI models, um, conversations that include sexuality within healthy relationships. Okay, Sarah, I want to bring you into the conversation now. You looked at whether or not there is LGBTQ inclusive sex education in the state. What did you find? So I found that LGBTQ inclusive sex ed is not mandated in New Hampshire, nor is it even mentioned in the state law. Um, There are actually a few places around the country where inclusive sex ed is mandatory. That would include California and Oregon. But on the flip side, there are also places where LGBTQ sex ed is explicitly illegal, like South Carolina, or even places like Texas where condemning homosexuality is part of the curriculum. Um, But when it comes to specifically New Hampshire, we did find one report um, by the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, also known as GLSEN. And they said that only 12 percent of queer students that participated in the survey received an inclusive sex education at school. So, you know, there does seem to be a gap for these kinds of students. There's this great story um, that you guys have in the podcast um, told by Chuck Rhodes, um, who teaches sex ed at Portsmouth High School. Sarah, can you kind of set this tape up for us? 
Yeah. So at one point in Dr. Rose's very long career, he has a very robust resume. Um, he was a professor at the University of New Hampshire teaching the human sexuality course there. And in the class, they cover LGBTQ inclusive sex ed. And they also included something called the Kinsey Scale. Um, it's essentially a tool to help people self-identify. The, the scale goes from zero to six. And zero means you identify exclusively as heterosexual, six meaning exclusively homosexual, and many people fall in between. Anyway, so in this class, he very distinctively remembers a girl named Katie um, who had a particular reaction to the Kinsey scale when he was writing it on the board. And I turned around and uh, she was crying. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I say? Um, so I said, Katie, are you OK? Uh, and she said, I'm, I'm crying because um, if I had known this in high school, it would have made my life so much easier. It wouldn't have been so painful. And boy, that was a that that stuck with me and still sticks with me. And I've and that's what I teach. That's part of my sexuality unit. You know, I teach for the Katies. And I think moments like this prove to Dr. Rhodes that this kind of sex education is really important. Another thing you both looked at was consent and what teenagers are absorbing. And Sarah, you talked to teen girls at the Boys and Girls Club in Manchester, and they were talking about feeling pressured. The older guys, too, like last year, they're on a hunt for little girls. What I'm telling you, yeah, we're too. There's a, in high school, there'd be kids that are not even supposed to be seniors looking no. towards little girls. No. Like, it's so they weird. No, like, they're like, like seniors like, going for like no, seventh not grade. seniors. Yeah, the ones like, like, they're like juniors. juniors. Okay. They're like juniors and sophomores, and they're like, like they like, want the eight They're so seven. bad at our they, school. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. They just want little girls so it's bad. Crazy. They know they can take advantage of them. And I feel like, and I feel weird too, because like I'm young and like, I, I, like I don't know. I just like look at myself differently. Like and like, like people that do it young age. Like I just don't know how. So in that tape, there were two girls out of a group of nine girls. Uh, their names were Janaya and Genti. And sitting with them for an hour, I think it was pretty obvious that there is a lot of pressure when it comes to being a 15-year-old girl. And I think pressure came from a lot of different places in their life. I think they got pressure from boys. I think they had pressure to fit in with their friends and their peers. I also think they got pressure from their parents um, that want to kind of uh, keep them their little girls and keep them pure in a lot of ways. Um, but regardless, I was extremely impressed by how empowered they felt um, to st- stand up for themselves, to speak out when they see something either happening to themselves or to other friends that um, is uncomfortable. Jimmy, you talked to the teenage boys at Boys and Girls Club and talked about consent. Um, let's, let's also take a listen to that conversation you had with them. Have you guys learned about consent? And if so, what do you understand about it? Like, it's like you have to, like, have permission before you, like, act upon, you know, the sexual things. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what consent is, you know, Get, getting, like, granted, like, permission in a way to, like, do anything, pretty sure, consent. But, like, yeah. To me, consent is, like, when we both mutually agree and also when we're both, like, comfortable enough to do it, like, we're both, like, ready not. Like, not, it's, like, not, like... 75, 25, it's supposed to be like 50, 50, like we're supposed to both mutually agree that we're ready to do this, I guess that's consent to me. And who is that, Jimmy? So that was uh, Mohammed uh, Aiden Namuftar, um, also from the Boys and Girls Club. And you talked about this tension between consent and also social expectations with these mm-hmm. boys. What did they have to say to you about that? 
you know, a big takeaway from the series and, and what the three, the three boys kind of echoed is that there are still a ton of expectations to kind of be emotionally repressive as, as a boy, as well as kind of seen as sexually dominant, uh, as far as like being desired, uh, having lots of partners. And so here's, this is a piece of tape from uh, Muhammad talking about that in- internal conflict. Like as a teenage boy, when you act tough, it's supposed to give you like clout or like some type of like popularity or like the girls will start feeling you and the girls will use you just for that. So by him being repressive, by him maybe not buying into uh, the ideals of consent, it makes him more appealing or at least at least that's what's been internalized. Wow. That's quite a tension to, to try mm. to be wrestling with at that right. age. So, so I want to go back to the broader debate. Um, and a big part of talking about sex education is deciding what to teach. And we've heard about comprehensive sex ed. Then there's also abstinence-based education. Jimmy, where does that factor into sex ed in New Hampshire these days? From the reporting, we couldn't find any examples of that existing in public education, However, when we talked with homeschooling groups and educators that were familiar with uh, the private school, they confirmed that these are the places that you're going to find both of those kind of educations, steering far away from the examples that we heard from earlier with Dr. Chuck Rhodes and, and more comprehensive sex ed classes. So if parents feel like the curriculum in school is inadequate, Sarah, what are some ways parents can and, and do supplement? So first, in New Hampshire, there actually is an opt-out law. If a parent doesn't want their kid in a sex ed class that's at school, then they have the right to take them out of it. But on top of that, there are resources that do exist outside of school. One that we found was the OWL program. It's a comprehensive sex ed program at the Unitarian Universalist Churches, um, as well as online resources. And for inclusive sex ed, the nonprofit Advocates for Youth, they've developed a free curriculum on their website. And there are also resources on the GLSEN website as well. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you both so much for talking about your reporting. Thanks for having us. That was Sarah Willa Ernst, a reporting fellow at New Hampshire Public Radio, and Jimmy Gutierrez, a producer for the station. Their reporting on sex ed is part of a two-part series on the podcast, The Second Greatest Show on Earth. Find the show at nhpr.org. That's a wrap on our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.